Let us pray. God, we live in a nation and in a world with great hardships and grave challenges. And we feel outrage and sadness and helplessness at what we see at times. Source of light and life, show us the way. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One morning several months ago, I received an email from someone in our diocese with the subject line, sermon suggestion, question mark. And this is what she wrote to me. I find myself in a struggle, John. I know that hating the hater isn't going to help anything, but I'm so disappointed in my fellow citizens right now. Love thy neighbor and turn the other cheek aren't cutting it for me right now. I can't even look at or listen to some of our political leaders. I've prayed, I've talked, I've listened. I feel like God is sad. I can't seem to find a direction to go or the peace to stay. That need not sound so dire, just my little brain trying to figure out and positively channel my energies. And then she signed off. You know, I appreciate the sincerity of that question, and I believe that it deserves a thoughtful answer. Now, let me be quick to affirm here this morning that at St. Andrews, we do not all think alike about politics, and as I've come to discover, about most anything. <laughs> we are a church that celebrates that this is not a place where we demand group think. We're stronger for that. Some of us are probably in a place where we're comfortable with the current political direction of our nation. Many of us are not. And the struggle to figure out how to respond in a way that is consistent with our faith and values is sometimes difficult, especially when we're holding together in spiritual community. So regardless of what your politics are this morning, there will no doubt come a time, if it's not right now, then sometime in the future, when you find yourself saying, Lord, what am I supposed to do with this reality? I want to tackle that question this morning. Before we dive into such a serious question, though, let me share, if you will permit me, a little bit of bipartisan humor just to relax our spirits this morning. Because laughter is good for the soul, right? Proverbs 17:22, a merry heart does good like a medicine, but a downcast spirit dries up the bones. Countless studies have shown the power of relaxing and laughter in healing the heart and the body and the mind. And so that's sort of why I try to build in humor into my sermons. It's not because I think I'm Jerry Seinfeld or that I think I need to entertain you. It's because life has wounded a lot of us. And for some of us, the churches of our past have wounded us. And I want this to be a place of healing and a place of joy. So in that spirit, did you hear about the time when Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer both ended up on the same small plane headed towards a political conference? 
In mid-flight, they got into this big debate about whose ideas would prosper and benefit the most people. At one point, McConnell pulls a $100 bill out of his pocket and says, I could throw this $100 bill out of the window of this plane and make somebody down there very happy. To that, Schumer responds, Mitch, that's the difference between you and me. Because if it were my $100 bill, I'd break it up into 10 $10 bills and throw it out the window and make 10 people down below very happy. Not to be outdone, McConnell says, well, I could take this $100 bill and break it into $101 bills and drop it out the window and make 100 people very happy. So back and forth they went until the pilot had all that he could stand and turned around and said, gentlemen, I could throw you both out of the window of this plane and make 325 million people down below very happy. So let's take a deep breath and let's tackle this subject. You know, I've always found the story of the Tower of Babel very strange. It's odd. It's a story at first blush to seem to be about people coming together and working together to make progress. I mean, they're building a city and a tower. But then God intervenes, breaks them apart into different languages and nations, and all the progress they're trying to achieve comes to this screeching halt. Why? Why would God do that? Is God against progress? As I've been thinking about this story, I've come to see it in a little bit of a different way. Remember that we've been moving through the book of Genesis, and at first we looked at the creation story itself, and then we looked at the fall of humanity, and now we're looking at certain short stories in the early part of the book that are meant to illustrate how the fall of humanity has impacted everything around us. So it occurred to me that Genesis chapter 11 is meant to illustrate for us in some way how our human Brokenness affects culture and politics. How so? Let's take a look. Genesis 11.1. 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. That right there, I think, is our first big clue as to what's happening in this story. It's fascinating to me that when the political powers that be in Babel at the time, when they saw an opportunity to rally the people together for a common cause, they did not say, hey, let's feed the hungry. Let's help the sick. Let's build houses for the homeless. Instead, it says they rallied the people to the common purpose of building a great city and in particular this huge tower that would forever be a tremendous monument to the greatness of those political leaders of Babel. The political leaders of Babel at the time were far more interested in empire building than meeting the needs of common people. So you get the picture. These leaders are seizing the opportunity to rally people for projects that would exalt their own greatness, their own reputation in history. And when you ever, whenever you get into that situation, whether it does not matter what political party you are aligned with or leading, whatever, whenever you get into that kind of situation, whether it's now or back then, you're in a dangerous situation. So the text goes on to say that the Lord God came down to see the tower 
And the Lord said, look, they are one people and they all have one language. And then this next phrase, and I was really interested to see how Terry read it this morning, because how you read it, the tone you put on it, affects everything. God says, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Now, you could read that and hear God saying, and this is only the beginning of what they would do. Or you could hear God saying, and this is only the beginning of what they would do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. So do you see what's happening here? When the people unite together for a common purpose, nothing is impossible for them. United people led by good leaders can, can accomplish incredibly wonderful things. But there's another side to that coin. United people led by bad leaders can do horrific things in this world. Imagine if in the 1940s, all of the people of the earth had united with Adolf Hitler. Thank God there were people of other languages, people in other nations who were able to rise up and resist the Nazi movement. Or today, we would be living in a horrific and dystopian world. And what was true in the 1940s was equally true in antiquity. God seems to seem to sense that for the earth to survive and have this chance of thriving, that it needed a system of checks and balances. So that if one particular nation went bad, it would not bring the whole earth down with it. Because you see, here's one of the main points I want to come across, I hope comes across today. Broken, a broken world fuels broken politics. And what was true then is equally true for our world today. Evan Williams was so excited when the company that he had co-founded launched Twitter. Now, do we know what Twitter is here this morning? Okay. Twitter was going to create a platform that would enable all of humanity to have one big conversation. The sky was the limit. The modern technological equivalent of the Tower of Babel. Let us build a tower that reaches to the heaven. Twitter was going to make possible communication on a level never thought possible. Everyone on the face of the planet, this was their, their exciting goal here, everyone on the face of the planet could engage in sharing information and having a common conversation. Evan Williams and others were so excited about the potential of this. In fact, the New York Times published an article stating that all of the great founders of social media platforms have been fueled by that deep sense of optimism of enabling human communication and that 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 kind of contact was going to definitely make for progress and make things better but the, that are that same article goes on to point out that on Facebook now it's possible to live stream your own suicide or beatings Twitter has become a hive for trolls that it cannot seem to control. In fact, disinformation threatens to undermine the very foundations of democracy in the West. This article went on to say that four out of 10 adults have reported being abused or harassed online. All of which has Evan Williams, has caused Evan Williams to step back and say, 
i once thought that when everybody could exchange information and speak freely their ideas that the world would automatically be a better place i was wrong about that i think the internet is broken here we go again the story of the tower of babel replicating itself in our time it seems whenever we human beings begin to pull together or to work together on a common cause to make everything better, our brokenness can easily hijack everything. We live in a broken world that fuels broken politics. When I was young, I used to ride around in, with my mom in our wood-paneled station wagon. She would crank up the radio when certain songs came on and we would belt them out together in the car. One of my favorites was The Age of Aquarius. You know, you know that song, right? When the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with Mars, then peace will guide our planet and love will steal the, steer the stars. This is the dawning of the Age of Aquarius. I love that song. I had no idea what it meant. You know, I don't know exactly friends where we're at in history right now but i do know that we are not in the age of aquarius how should we as people of faith respond to broken politics fortunately for us we're not the first generation of people of faith to face such questions as you look back throughout history you can see time and again points where people of faith were struggling with that exact same question and as I look back at how they responded, I see at least three key themes in each of these situations that people of faith throughout the ages, what they've done when they encounter political upheaval. And the first of these things is something that you're not want to, going to want to hear, but it's critically important. It begins with hopeful endurance, consciously choosing to cultivate an attitude of hopeful endurance. James 1-2, what Terry read, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it all joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. The implication of these words is that an attitude of hopeful endurance is the pinnacle of spiritual maturity and completeness. In other words, you will know that you are a spiritually powerful person when you get to that place, when you customarily respond to great challenges in your life with an attitude of hopeful endurance. You see, grim endurance is no help at all. Hopeful endurance gives us power and energy. In fact, there's nothing quite so subversive in this world as the power of hope. So never let anyone drain or contain your hope. Hope is a choice. We choose to have hope because we believe God's goodness is greater than whatever present tribulation we're facing. And that God's goodness is bound to overcome even if we cannot see how right now. Tell me, are you choosing to foster that attitude of hopeful endurance in your life? It's one of the keys to being a spiritually powerful person. How do we respond to political upheaval? Number one, hopeful endurance. Number two, patient prophetic action. Whenever people of faith are em embracing enduring hope, 
they are inevitably then being inspired to keep on doing whatever they can. Little things here and there to move them closer. One simple act at a time towards their delivery. The next time you're sitting watching detention centers on TV or politicians of whatever stripe putting forward policies that just raise your blood pressure and you're getting upset by it, remember this motto, do, don't stew. Little actions, one by one, that accumulate over time to build momentum. Do, don't stew. Don't throw up your hands and say, what's the point? When enough people do that, evil prevails. But when enough people push back and do what they can, evil will fail. It may seem like what we're doing is just a drop of water in the ocean sometimes. But when enough of us act together, things do change. And that's all that God asks us to do is what we can do. God asks us not to be indifferent towards the problems of this world. And finally, the third thing, this is probably the hardest of all, is love your enemies. Jesus commands us to do this because he knows that love is the only power that can actually destroy hate, that can build bridges to those who oppose us. You've probably heard of the famous friendship between Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her polar opposite on the Supreme Court when he was alive, Antonin Scalia. In the courtroom, they were often at each other's throats. But outside of the courtroom, they were best of friends. There are pictures of them at the opera together. Pictures of them traveling through India together. Um, there's a photo of them in India where they're both on the same elephant. And Ruth was asked how she as a femi feminist rode behind Antonin on the elephant. She replied that it was simply a matter of weight distribution. She's asked, doesn't it feel odd, even treasonous, to be such a good friend with such a political opponent? And her response was interesting. Before my mother died, she says, she always gave me the same advice over and over. Ruth, always be a lady and always be independent. And by independent, she meant always be able to stand on your own two feet. And by being a lady, she meant to always treat people around you with respect and courtesy and kindness. And she went on to explain that she felt, she felt a responsibility to always build bridges of friendship with those with whom we disagree. Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not form that friendship with Scalia out of weakness, but out of strength. Abraham Lincoln once said, do I not destroy my enemy when I make him my friend? That's what Dr. King did. That's what Mandela did. That's what Gandhi did. That's what Lincoln did. That's what Ginsburg did. That's what Jesus Christ did. This is the way to create change in a broken world. Hopeful endurance accompanied by patient prophetic actions wrapped in transformational kindness and love. Do this, and goodness will ultimately prevail. Amen.